Previously on Disappeared in the Desert. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I want to report a missing person, my little girl who's six years old. I believe she was abducted from our house. I remember briefly waking up and hearing male voices outside my bedroom window, but it was light outside. I didn't really think anything of it. And then I just went back to sleep. And then at 8 o'clock, I got a knock on the door saying that she was missing. I went to work this morning at 7, and um, I just, and I didn't even come and check out her. I should have come and check out her. Okay. All right, just take a deep breath, okay? To the person or persons who have Isabel, tell us your demands. Tell us what you want. We will do anything for her. We are looking, we're looking for you, Isabel. You're listening to a KOLD News 13 original podcast. I'm Bud Foster. And I'm Shaylee Sanders. This is Disappeared in the Desert. It's April 21st, 2012, and the Sellers family reported their six-year-old daughter, Isabel, missing. Within hours, the Tucson Police Department began a wide, thorough search in hope of finding her. We combed through hundreds of police documents, which gives us an overview of what went into the search for Isabel. 911, what's your emergency? Sergio, her father, called 911 to report her missing at 8.13 in the morning. He says he checked everywhere in the house for Isabel, but law enforcement conducted its own search when they arrived on the scene. I talked to Richard Harper, a retired Tucson Police Department captain. He worked on several missing person cases throughout his career. He did not work on the Isabel Sellers case, but gave us insight into the process of responding to those types of calls. The very first place you start out when the, when it's the calls from the parents and it's the, from the home is you search the home very thoroughly. And you, not only do you do it, but you have one of your uh, other officers do it right after you so that you got two or three or maybe even four sets of eyes that are looking every place. Officers did not find any sign of Isabel. They searched other locations where she may be, including the house of her grandfather, Sergio's father, neighbors' homes, and the park where the baseball game Isabel was supposed to be playing in is located. When they're doing the investigating, now, how often does the child actually turn up safe as opposed to how often a child is murdered? Right. I would say that it's, it's uh, in the child abduction category, I would say that it's, you know, 75% of the time the child is killed, so only about 25% of the cases. Now, if it's just a missing child, okay, then the, the return home safely is a lot higher. So, you know, it's going to be in the 80% range, 90% range. Missing as opposed to abducted. Right, missing as opposed to abducted. So you're going to approach both of those kinds of incidents the exact same way until you find the child or you discover where the child's at. Retired Captain Richard Harper says time is the enemy when it comes to searching for missing children. That's because uh, typically children who are abducted, many of them are killed within the first hour of being abducted. 
at Freedom Park, two and a half miles from the seller's home, an officer documented finding a car that was registered to someone who lived close to the seller's family. When the owner returned, he told the officer he was helping look for Isabel in washes and in tunnels. The Tucson Police Department shut down public access to the neighborhood. Officers were continuously on watch, questioning every car coming and going from the neighborhood, documenting their names, their license plates, and where they lived. Helicopters circled overhead. At first, officers focused on a specific radius around the seller's home, and here's why. Most children are killed on average within about two to 300 feet of where they're abducted. It wasn't just members of several Southern Arizona law enforcement agencies searching for Isa. Community members rallied around the Sellis family to help them find their little girl. Co-workers of her mother, Rebecca, organized volunteer search teams. Not only does a hit home get us in our community, but when it's somebody that you know personally. It's pretty emotional. It's a co-worker's daughter. I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old myself. And it's really emotional thinking that something like this can happen. Business owners also stepping in to help by posting flyers on their entrances and handing more out to customers coming into their stores. Officers searched Sergio's workplace. He worked as a dental hygienist for an office in Tucson. There, officers documented that they didn't find Isabel, but they did find a Food City plastic bag that contained clothes that looked like they belonged to an adult. Those items were submitted into evidence, but appears they were left to be picked up by anyone needing a donation. In the last episode, we broke down the evidence we know that was collected at the Sellis home in nearby areas. Here are some other items documented and collected by investigators on the first day. About a mile from the Sellis home was an abandoned white buck wagon. Not far from there, a child's pillow was on the ground near a telephone pole. Around 8 p.m., the day Isabel was reported missing, Southern Arizona Rescue Association volunteers were searching about a mile and a half from the Celluses and found red fluid on the ground and a small rug with fluid. A police document says a search warrant was executed at a neighbor's house after Department of Corrections K-9 alerted to the house, but we don't know what, if anything, was found inside that home. Documents say a man and a woman were detained and the man was placed in the patrol car. This is only the beginning of the search warrants executed in this case. Several were served in the area on the second day of the search, which was focused on a two and a half mile radius around the Sellis home. By 3 p.m. on the Saturday of Isabel's disappearance, detectives started researching sex offender information in the general area of the Sellis home, Craycroft and Broadway. Officers then went to the addresses listed for each person on the list to verify their whereabouts from Friday, April 20th through then-present day. Of the 17 sex offenders within a three-mile radius, 12 of them committed acts of sexual violence against children. Here's the Tucson police chief. We have located, identified and located every registered sex offender and talked to them. And that's a very vital part of our investigation that we need to check them off of the list. According to the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering and Trafficking, known as SMART for short, a study of a sample of sex offenders found a sexual recidivism rate of 21.1% for the treated offenders and a 21.8% of untreated offenders. 
the general and violent recidivism rates for both groups were more than double their sexual recidivism rates. By Sunday, day three of the search, the search had expanded to a three-mile radius around the home, involving 250 law enforcement officers. Organized searches by police and volunteers included lakes and the nearby landfill. There's a tremendous amount of stress on the family, you know, and, and close friends and when a child goes missing. But there's even more stress on the police officers because the expectation is, is that you have the expertise, you know what you're doing, and you're going to find uh, my child for me, and you're going to bring him home safely. And that's, that's a heavy burden, and the police accept that, and, and that's the outcome that they want. That's the goal. At the landfill, investigators found two pairs of blue child-sized shorts, apparent animal bones, views of apparent human hair, and a small purse with a photo of an unknown woman inside. Officers say they found a Blackberry at the landfill, which was a popular kind of cell phone in the late 2000s, belonging to Robert Snyder Rodriguez, who is the brother of Rebecca Salas. They took photographs of the phone and text messages, call logs, and contact information found on it. A search warrant was later served for Robert Rodriguez and his father, grandfather of Isabel, Hector Rodriguez's car. According to the police report, an officer was told there was a false positive reaction on a towel that was located behind the driver's seat. A towel and a pocket knife were found in the driver's side door pocket and were the only items taken from the truck and placed into evidence. Sunday afternoon, detectives involved in the investigation were ordered to line up by Isabel's window. They all walked past the scent dog brought in by the FBI from Virginia, who was looking to detect by scent if there was an unknown scent. The detectives allowed the dog to smell their hand. This was done twice, and when it was over, the dog alerted by barking that there was still an unknown scent. The handler did this process again with the detectives, plus members of the Salas family that were there. The dog did not alert this time, which could mean there was no outstanding person that had been at Isabel's window. When that dog was finished, a cadaver dog was brought in. They're trained how to pick up the scent of human remains. It explored around the street, the cellist yard, and then went back inside the home. One officer says while he was observing outside the house, he heard the dog bark inside the home, alerting his handler. After the dog was brought into the garage, the same officer heard the dog bark several times. The handler of the dog then shut the garage door to see if the dog still alerted and he could still hear barking. In the document, the handler told officers the dog alerted in the boy's bedroom, under the bed, and in the garage. An officer confirmed the alerts are only for the detection of human decomposition. Six days after her disappearance, the Tucson Police Department released surveillance video showing five people in the business area near the seller's home in the hours leading up to her disappearance. What we're interested in is identifying and talking to people who may have been in the area from 11 at night to 8 in the morning. And just this one, we happened through the video surveillance to know that there were five people there at that time. The department believes the people, appearing to be two men and three women, were coming from the strip mall area behind the seller's home near one of the two bars. In the video, there is some type of movement in the corner as the five people pass by. We would like to have those people, if they know that that is them, 
to identify themselves to us and contact us so at least we can see if they did see anything or verify that they did not. From day one, tips began pouring in for Isabel after the announcement of her disappearance, and police take them seriously. It's not rocket science, right? So when you get a tip, you gotta check it out. Whether it comes from 8-8 crime, whether it comes from a citizen, whether it comes from a victim, not in a murder case, obviously, but a victim, say, for example, in a rape case, uh, or whether it comes from a family. Sometimes families can give detectives tips that are, you know, that they follow up on. But whenever you get a tip, um, the detective is going to evaluate it for credibility. You know, what kind of information is the person providing? Um, how does that match up with the... Um, the evidence that I have right now, the information that I have right now, does it seem to fit? Is it part of the timeline? Because timeline is so critical uh, in these cases. You know, does this fit in that timeline? You know, does it seem like this person might have firsthand knowledge of what's going on? So therefore, is their credibility maybe a little bit higher? When a department receives hundreds, thousands of leads, it can be overwhelming for the department to follow up on, especially if there's not a lot of information to them. Somebody has got to make contact with each one of those persons and then listen to their information, then evaluate. So, uh, and then decide whether that needs to go to the investigating detective or, you know, and, need, and needs more follow-up, you know, or whether it needs, whether that information might put us on to an item of evidence that needs to go to the lab for DNA analysis or some, you know, or fingerprints or that kind of stuff. So, you know, you have to evaluate what the what the tip is and then, you know, the credibility. A member of the Tucson Police Department weighed in on some of the tips we received in this case. Some of the tips run the gamut. It could be sightings, it could be a, a whole wide variety of them. I'm not going to get into every single particular tip, but, but they're varied, they're broad, and uh, yeah, a lot of them don't have much value to them. As he mentions, there are lots of tips, and we will not share all of them with you, but here's some of them. On Sunday, April 22nd, a man flagged down an officer a mile and a half from the Cellis home at Breakmaster, saying he saw a young girl running northbound on Columbus, heading towards Speedway a few minutes ago. A few moments later, he told police he saw an older man, possibly Hispanic or Caucasian, with white hair walking on Columbus. Officers went to that area and didn't find any girl. A woman claims she saw a small petite girl who looked like Isabel while getting her hair cut at the Walmart salon. The child was with an older white man around the age of 60 who has long, thin white hair and a stocky build. The caller says it looked like an older version of Celis's father. Another reported the house across the street from her has been vacant for two years. Since then, there's been multiple burglaries, including one four days before Issa's disappearance. A man reported a suspicious person in the alleyway near his house around 9 to 9.30 in the morning Isabel was discovered missing, located a half a mile away from the Cellis home. He says it was a white man, about 35 years old, with short black hair, about 5'10", 215 pounds, wearing a white shirt and black letters saying, Car World. The tipster told police the man was sitting on an electrical box in the alley. You may remember the electrical boxes were a topic of interest to police because they found footprints on top of an electrical box located directly behind the Cellis home around 11 a.m. The Department of Corrections K-9 unit stated the footprints appeared to be from a Wolverine brand work boot or similar type of shoe. 
According to the police reports, the tread patterns did not match either the Bates or Converse patterns typically worn by patrol officers. Three matching boot prints were then discovered in the soft sand and dirt approximately five feet south of the electrical box. Canine units also discovered possible matching prints on top of a gas meter on the west side of the Sellis home. Four days since she was discovered missing, the Tucson Police Department announced the search phase of the case ended and moved into the investigative process. That same day, Sergio and Rebecca Sellis' blood samples were taken by search warrant. Officers combed through traffic camera photographs at major intersections. One was found that depicted a young girl sitting in the front passenger seat at 10.30 a.m. The morning Isabel was reported missing. Officers followed up with the driver. It wasn't Isabel. I'm sure you've noticed the reduction in staff, and that's basically because we have hit just about every area that we can find. We've gone back several times to some of the, the locations and some of the places where we didn't get contact. We've gone back three or four times to try and make contact. Down the line, the Tucson Police Department say there's still no sign of Isabel and scaled back their investigation. Police say they pursued more than 2,000 leads and interviewed multiple persons of interest. An FBI behavior analysis unit was brought in, volunteers set up a booth at the Pima County Fair, and a reward was offered, but still no luck. Where could Isabel be? Was she abducted from her bedroom, or did she run away from home? Fast forward to the morning of July 23, 2012, 911 dispatchers received this call. 911. Hello? Hello, can I help you? He's coming. What? He's coming. What address are you at? You know what address you're at? Hello? 911, what is the emergency? Isabel. 911, what is your emergency? Isabel. What are you reporting? A kidnap. Do you have a police, fire, or medical emergency? A kidnap. What address are you at? East Old Spanish Trail. And are you reporting a kidnapping or have you been kidnapped? Me. Hello? Hello? This is 911. How may I help you? He's coming. Who's coming? Officers searched the area of East Old Spanish Trail and saw no sign of Isabel. The 911 call was placed by a non-active phone and traced to an apartment complex near Colvin 22nd. Unfortunately, the call turned out to be a prank organized by two teenage girls. They were taken to juvenile hall and immediately released. If you're wondering just how large of a police response there was to this ultimately prank call, police told KOLD News at the time it ended up costing the city of Tucson about $4,700 in officer wages during a four-hour search in the area. That includes 25 officers, three detectives, one commander, and four communication personnel. For years, investigators say they followed up on any leads they received on Isabel's possible location on what happened the night she disappeared, but none of it led to her discovery. 
In 2016, more than four years after she vanished, a business located across the street from the seller's house at the time, called More Security Solutions, released surveillance video never before seen by the public showing what happened in the neighborhood in the early morning of April 21, 2012. From the beginning, Sergio Salas thought the business across the street might have surveillance. You know, lots of surveillance that's around this house that was right there in that alley. More Security Solutions says he came in and asked for it days after Issa went missing. But as soon as he left, the Tucson Police Department and the FBI reportedly seized everything. They were watching him, that's for sure, because they knew exactly and they wanted to know what I told them. And I told them nothing. That's Lisa Solis, who worked for More Security Solutions. In a special interview with KOLD in 2016, she showed us what's on the video. At 2.36 a.m., a private security vehicle lights up in the alley next to the seller's home. Ten minutes later, at 2.46 a.m., we see two cars in the parking lot facing Broadway. There's a lot of foot traffic everywhere, which seems odd in the middle of the night. Several show interest in trash bins close to the seller's house. About an hour before the 911 call, the video shows a truck speeding around the corner straight for the dumpster. In the nearly 10 hours of footage, there's never any sign of Isabel. Here's Sergio Salas' response at the time to the surveillance video. Everything that we've asked about that, those surveillance cameras to the police, and they tell us, oh, well, it takes a long time to go through. Well, here we are four years later. Have we ever gotten anything? Because there was something on those videotapes. I know there was. Next time on Disappeared in the Desert. Somebody out there someplace has information about this case, and it's that key piece of information that we're missing. Who's behind the disappearance of Isabel? Rumors swirl across the city. What do you say directly to the people who are assuming in some shape or form that you played a role in your daughter's disappearance? People begin to criticize the police department's investigation. Are they doing enough to find Isabel? There are several uh, misstatements that have been put down in this report. Disappeared in the Desert is a KOLD News 13 original podcast hosted by Shaylee Sanders and Bud Foster. Special thanks to our editor, Jesse Zoller, writer and executive producer, Colleen Menadier, digital content producer, Mia Courtright, and executive producer of daily content, Michael Cooper. <laughs>